Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. This morning, we are beginning a, a new sermon series on the book of Psalms. And no, we will not be considering every psalm in the book of Psalms, but it will be an overview of the book of Psalms. And so today, we will be beginning with a consideration of Psalm 1. Now, before we turn to read God's word, it's important to remember that uh, God's means, that when we say that the, the word of God is a means of grace, we, we don't just mean that the preaching of the word is a means of grace, but the public reading of God's word is a means of grace. This is one of the directives that Paul gives to Timothy. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And so, as we will soon turn to read Psalm 1, this is not a mere formality. This is part of God's means of grace for us on this Lord's Day morning. So Psalm 1, please turn your attention uh, to God's holy word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, the book of Psalms is a cherished and beloved book in the Christian church. In fact, I would imagine that many of you have a psalm or a number of psalms that uh, you routinely return to as a source of comfort. I believe part of the reason why uh, the Psalms have been such a cherished book uh, within the history of, of the Christian church is because they are they're personal. John Calvin once called the, the Psalms the anatomy of the human soul insofar as it speaks to virtually every human emotion under the sun. We read the Psalms and oftentimes... It's very applicable to what we are going through, whether uh, we are going through the highs of life or the lows of life. However, I also think that many Christians today view the Psalms as a compilation of independent, autonomous poems that have been strung together. So it might surprise us to know that the Psalms were compiled with intentionality. There is an order structure, and flow to the Psalms. So one of my goals in this sermon series in the next weeks and, and months is for 
us to not only enjoy the individuality of the particular psalms that we will be considering, but also for us to get a glimpse of this, the, the big picture, of the flow, of the structure of the psalms. Now, Psalm 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the psalms. They give us a window or a glimpse into the purpose and the message of the entire Psalter. And the psalmist is very intentional about, about us viewing Psalm 1 and 2 as its own distinct unit. So, for instance, you'll see that Psalm 1 verse 1 begins with a reference to this term, blessed. And the last verse of Psalm 2 concludes with a reference to this term, blessed. You'll see that the end of Psalm 1 uh, uses these two terms of way and perish. And the end of Psalm 2 uses these same terms of way and perish. And so the psalmist is very intentional about us uh, seeing that Psalm 1 and 2 are, are its own distinct unit. And they serve as an introduction to the entire Psalter. Now, one co commentator that I was reading this, uh, this week on Psalm 1 introduced his comments uh, to Psalm 1 by noting how we live in a world of seemingly endless options. Wherever you turn, you are confronted with dozens, hundreds, even thousands of options and choices and decisions. And it can be quite overwhelming. However, if you put this world of seemingly endless options into a pot and keep boiling it down you essentially come away with two options. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, which is what we read in verse 6. Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. According to Psalm 1, there's essentially two paths, two ways in life. The path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. This is a very helpful summary uh, to Psalm 1. Now, let's say an individual is seeking to travail the way or the path of the righteous. What would that individual look like? Well, Psalm 1, verses 1, and 1 through 2 tell us that individual would look like the blessed man. This man who does not, take the who does not follow the advice, the attitude, or the actions of the wicked, which is what we read in verse 1 but positively one who meditates upon the law of the Lord and one who finds his delight in the law of the Lord. And so what I want us to do this morning is to consider this blessed man. Consider what the psalmist means when he says, blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. That is really the central theme of this psalm and what it means to travail the path or the way of the righteous. So first, this psalm begins by saying, blessed is the man. Who is the man that the psalmist is referring to? Well, in the original language of, of Psalm 1, this noun is in the singular, and the grammatical gender of this noun is masculine. So the psalmist is wanting us to think of a singular representative figure who is a male. 
which means that this translation, which we read in our ESV, is very important. Blessed is the man. We should not say blessed is the one, gender neutral. We also shouldn't say blessed are the people. The psalmist is very intentional. This is a singular representative male figure. Blessed is the man. Now, we read that this man has a special connection to the law of the Lord. Now, what does the psalmist mean when he uses this phrase, the law of the Lord? Well, one of the references of this phrase is the law of Moses or the Torah or the first five books of Moses. The first five books that begin our Old Testaments. There are, I mentioned before that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 function as an introduction to the Psalter. And after Psalm 1 and 2, the rest of the Psalms are compiled or structured around five books. So there are five books within the Psalms. And there's this ancient uh, rabbinic tradition that says, just as Moses gave five books of laws to Israel, so too David gave five books of psalms to the people of Israel. And so when we read uh, this phrase, the law of the Lord, we should think of the first five books of Moses, the law of Moses. However, we also should have in mind the general instruction of the Lord. Now, many commentators have noted that Psalm 1 bears many resemblances to the wisdom literature of Scripture. So think Proverbs. And so, therefore, in this sense, the law of the Lord refers to something more bro uh, uh, broader than just the first five books of Moses. So if we rendered this the instruction of the Lord, this would refer to God's moral order, a moral order that we can learn about, that we can discern, even outside the pages of Scripture. Uh, think of Proverbs. In Proverbs, we learn that we can even look at an ant and, and learn something about God's moral universe. So to summarize what the psalmist means with this phrase, the law of the Lord, you could say it refers to the law of God as it's revealed both in special revelation in scripture and in general revelation, as that law is written upon our hearts and revealed more broadly in creation. Now, what does this blessed man do with the law of the Lord? Well, he delights in this law, but we also read that he meditates upon the law of the Lord. And this, this word meditation refers literally to a muttering or a murmuring. And it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a, a dove cooing or a lion roaring or even inarticulate human speech. It's the image that comes to mind is someone thinking intensely about a certain subject and even muttering to themselves as they're engaging this subject. And so it's a, it's a practice that engages the mind, even engages the mouth. So it's not an emptying of the mind, it's an engaging of the mind. We also should think of what James says in his epistle, that we should not be mere hearers of the law, but doers also. 
So this, this idea of meditation is not just studying something, not just knowing certain facts. It's internalizing something in such a way that it produces fruit in our life. That we begin to live according to these moral principles. So this individual who meditates upon the law, or you could even say the instruction of the Lord, we read is blessed. Is blessed. Now what does this, this, this idea of, of, of blessedness refer to? Well, verse 3 is very helpful for us. Notice the metaphor that the psalmist gives us in verse 3. The one who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night is someone who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Again, that last word, I think, is summarizing the metaphor. This is denoting a state of prosperity, a state of fruitfulness, a state of permanence. To be blessed in this sense is really to live according to the moral grain of this universe and to enjoy the blessings that come from living the way in which God made us to live. Now it's interesting, uh, the, the intentionality that the psalmist puts into the composition of this psalm. Notice what the first word is in, in this psalm. And notice what the last word is in this psalm. The first word is blessed, and the last word is perish. Now this word uh, blessed in the original Hebrew begins with the first character of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last word perish begins with the last character of the Hebrew alphabet. Which seems to suggest that these two words are opposites. And the psalmist is warning us uh, to see that. To be blessed is the complete opposite of the state of perishing. And what does it mean to perish? Well, it means uh, to, to vanish, to come to nothing, to be fruitless, to be like chaff, which is to, uh, today here and tomorrow it's blown away by the wind. And so to be blessed is to enjoy the state of prosperity, to live the way God has made us to live, and to enjoy this state of fruitfulness and, and permanence within that fruitfulness. So again, the central theme that I want us to latch on to is this theme of blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. Now, when the psalmist was originally penning these words, who did he have in mind? Who did the psalmist have in mind in the original context of, of the psalm? Well, I believe that one of the individuals that the psalmist had in mind was the first man, the first Adam. Now, why do I think this? Well, I think there are intentional connections here uh, between the Garden of Eden and Psalm 1. So, for instance, Adam was created in this context, and this context was a garden, and this garden had four rivers. It was well watered. And this blessed man is like a tree planted by 
streams of water. We also know that Adam was created in a context in which day and night was the basic division of time. And this blessed man is called to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. We see Adam's main task in that original state of innocence was to obey, meditate, and do the law of God. Adam wasn't called only to obey that one commandment, that one negative prohibition of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that Adam was called to obey all of God's law, as he had God's law written upon his heart. And so, too, this blessed man is one who meditates upon the law of the Lord. And so, Psalm 1 should make us think of Adam's experience in the Garden of Eden. I also think that the psalmist has in mind Israel, and particularly Israel's time in the land of Canaan during the period of of monarchy. There are many connections between uh, Psalm 1 and Israel's time in Canaan. Now kings, the kings of Israel, were representative figures. As the king went, so goes the people. And in Deuteronomy 17, Moses says that the kings of Israel are to keep a book of the law, a book of the law of Moses. And they are to be careful to read this law, to learn this law, and to do this law. This is one of their main priorities as being a king of the people of God. Now consider how the land of Canaan is described. The land of Canaan is described as being a well-watered land, which is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Uh, The land of Canaan is also described as being a land full of good fruit and good food, which is also reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, which is a place of, 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 of a bounty of produce and fruit. We also see in 2 Kings 4 that Solomon is described as the ideal gardener, which is reminiscent of Adam's task to work the garden. And all of these connections then resemble Psalm 1 in the horticultural language of verse 3, of this tree planted by streams of water that produces fruit in its season. So I believe when the psalmist is writing Psalm 1, he, he wants us to think of the first Adam. He wants us to think of those kings, those representative figures during Israel's time in the land of Canaan. This is who the psalmist had in mind in that original historical context. And so let us consider, how did that first Adam do? Which path did that first man choose? Did he choose to travail the path of righteousness or did he choose the way of the wicked? Of course, we know that Adam failed. He failed to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. We we know that he chose the way of the wicked. He rejected his his covenantal relationship with the Lord and, and decided to enter a covenant with the serpent and thus was exiled east of Eden. Adam fails. What about Israel? Well, we learn that every king of Israel, even the best kings, David and Solomon, 
failed to do what they were called to do. They failed to learn, to read, and to do the law of God. Over and over, they caused the people of God to fall into idolatry. They chose the way or the path of the wicked. And Israel's time under the law of Moses is meant to function as a microcosm for the Gentiles' experience under the natural law, that natural law which is written upon our hearts. And so when we think about how Adam failed, when we think about how Israel failed, we also should think about how we all fail as we have God's law written upon our hearts. We all have chosen that path of wickedness. We all have failed to properly meditate and do the law of God day and night, and thus we all deserve that sentence of condemnation. Consequently, then, this psalm is meant to create within us this longing, this expectation for one who will be the true blessed man, one who will perfectly meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. The first Adam failed. Every king of Israel failed. And thus the people of Israel are longing for one to come who will be this blessed man, who will meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. Therefore, when we come to the New Testament, what we see then is where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Christ prevailed. Christ is the only one who can claim the title of blessed man. He is the only one who was able to perfectly not just hear the law of God, but do the law of God day and night. And because of this obedience, he is like a tree planted by streams of water which produces its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. You may, ask, you may, you may be uh, wondering to yourself, how can Jesus be this, this tree of verse 3 if, if when we consider his life during the Gospels, his life seemed far from prosperous? He endured affliction and suffering and betrayal and even death. Well, he experienced the greatest prosperity one could ever hope for insofar as he inherited the new creation. Think about what he did after his resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, meaning he was the first human being to enter the new creation. And so when we read verse 3 in light of Christ, we should see verse 3 as denoting this new creational tree. Christ, by his obedience, earned and merited the new creation, God's original destiny for all mankind. And so when we read Psalm 1, we come to discover that it's, first of all, not, not about us. I think it's tempting for us to read this psalm or other psalms and immediately think that we are the primary reference. We read Psalm 1 and we think that the primary application to Psalm 1 is how we need to be more committed to our private devotions or how we need to think about the truth of God's word more often throughout our day. Now, that may be a tertiary application, but that is not primarily what Psalm 1 is about. Psalm 1 is primarily about how Adam failed, Israel failed, but Christ prevailed. 
And this teaches us how we should approach the Psalms. We need to approach the Psalms by first looking at the historical horizon and context of the Psalms and see how that historical horizon creates within us this longing and expectation for this Messiah to come. And only then can we ask how that Psalm applies to me and to you in our particular circumstances. So how does Psalm 1 apply to us today? Well, the first and primary application is that this psalm calls us to faith in the blessed man. As I mentioned before, Christ is the only one who can claim the title of, of the blessed man because he's the only one who is able to perfectly meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. He's the only one who is able to earn the blessing of the new creation by his own obedience. But when we do profess faith in this Christ, we become a branch incorporated into the tree of Christ who's planted by streams of water. Think about Jesus' language of the vine and the branches. That by faith we are united to Christ and thus we become like a branch and joined to the vine of, uh, the vine of Christ. And so the great hope that we have, the great uh, blessing that we have of those who profess faith in Christ is we are citizens of heaven. We can be assured that where Christ is right now, we will one day be because we are united to him. We are like a branch incorporated into the tree of Christ. So this passage is calling us to faith. Faith in the blessed man. Faith in his obedience, his righteousness, which is imputed and credited to our account. Well, the psalm also calls us to meditate. Uh, that imperative is not only, or that call is not only something that Christ fulfills, it is something that we are called uh, to practice. We are called to imitate the blessed man. Now remember those two definitions that I gave to the law of the Lord. It refers both to uh, the Torah, but also refers more generally to the instruction of the Lord. Uh, this moral order that exists even beyond the bounds of, of Holy Scripture. So what does it mean for us to meditate upon the instruction of the Lord? Well, in one sense, I think what it means for us to meditate on the instruction of the Lord is for us to grow in wisdom. Now, one author um, defines wisdom, I think, in a very helpful way. He defines wisdom not as, as the mere memorization of certain rules or commandments or even necessarily application. But rather, wisdom is a subjective quality. And it's a subjective quality that discerns the fullness of God's objective moral order. It discerns how to live well in this world. It discerns the particular actions that will be effective or destructive in any given situation. And so the way in which we meditate upon this, this instruction of the Lord is, is we grow in wisdom. We grow in our ability to discern God's moral order in this universe. And when we meditate upon the instruction of the Lord, we, we, we do this not primarily by reading scripture. Again, I'm, I'm working with that, that definition of, of, of the law of the Lord that's that broad instruction of the Lord. And so we meditate upon the instruction of the Lord not primarily by reading scripture. Rather, we meditate upon the law of the Lord by being attentive in our daily life. By observing, reflecting, and making moral conclusions about life in this world. 
This is exactly what we witness in the book of Proverbs. Think of the book of Proverbs. The wise man in the book of Proverbs is attentive as he goes throughout his day. The wise man in the book of Proverbs is observing, reflecting, and making moral conclusions about life in this world. The wise man in the book of Proverbs witnesses the sluggard and witnesses and, and recognizes how a little, a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands and destruction will overtake you. The wise man in the book of Proverbs notices the ant and the industriousness of the ant and realizes that industriousness is a very good virtue in this life. The wise man in the book of Proverbs notices the young man who is seduced by the married woman and, and realizes the havoc that is wreaked by adultery. And so in the book of Proverbs, we see someone who is attentive, someone who is observing, someone who is reflecting, and someone who is making moral conclusions about life in this world. And that's, this is what we're called to do. We're called to be attentive about life in this world and how, how to live the life that God has called us to live as image bearers. And we see that we are blessed when we do this. Life generally goes better when we live according to the grain of God's moral order. Now, of course, this is tempered when we read books like Job or Psalms like Psalm 73 because we know we live in a fallen world and sometimes the virtuous languish and the wicked thrive. However, there is this principle that we are called to meditate upon the instruction of the Lord. Now, again, as I mentioned before, this phrase, the law of the Lord, also refers to God's law as it's revealed in special revelation. And for the Old Testament people of God, that was the law of Moses. Now, we know as New Covenant believers, we are not strictly under the law of, of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. And Paul refers to the New Covenant commandments as the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is essentially the, the Ten Commandments applied to those of us who live after the coming of Christ. And thus here we are called to meditate particularly upon the law of Christ. And insofar as we meditate upon the law of Christ, we don't have any blessings of earthly prosperity, but rather we have blessing of, blessing, uh, the promise of blessing of heavenly treasure. So we are blessed, not by earthly prosperity, but by heavenly treasure. This is what uh, the Sermon on the Mount says. When Jesus says we are not to store up um, treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. And thus we are called to be a people who meditate both on the broad instruction of the Lord and particularly upon the law of Christ as it comes to us in Holy Scripture. Well, blessed is a man who meditates upon the law of the Lord. Uh, these themes of blessedness, these themes of a, of a singular representative figure, of meditation and of the law of the Lord will be like threads that the, the rest of the Psalms will continue to pull as we make our way through the Psalter. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, we thank you for how they do indeed express uh, the emotions of, of life lived in a fallen world. We pray that you would encourage us with this word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in this blessed man. We thank you for Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And we pray that we also would be a people who live lives of wisdom, who uh, are marked by meditating upon uh, the law of Christ. 
We pray all these things in the name